Hey friends, Zolgar here with some exciting news. I'm going to be at SAC Anime in Sacramento, California, September 2nd through 4th, Rose City Comic Con in Portland, Oregon, September 9th through 11th, and Salt Lake Fanex in Salt Lake City, Utah, September 22nd through 24th. I won't have a table, but I will have some buttons that I can hand out if you come find me. I'll be hanging out with my friend, the Peculiar Magpie, at his booth selling cool props and nerdy art pieces. I will post pictures and booth numbers on our social media during each show. Welcome to Two Idiots and a Dog Presents Serial Idiocy. Our take on a true crime podcast. What? No! A podcast about breakfast cereal? You're being intentionally obtuse, aren't you? (sighs) Fine. A discussion of serialized media such as TV or streaming shows. I'm Grim. I think I'm Zolgar. Um, Kaiju ran off for whatever reason. She does that. This week we're talking about the hot new show on Netflix, The Sandman. Okay, so why did we decide to do The Sandman? Well, first of all, it's been decades in the making and is considered to be one of the top graphic novels of all time. Yeah, and the show is frankly amazing. It is very good. Good enough. We bumped our lineup. Yeah, we, we basically, I watched the first couple episodes of this, and I was like, hey, Grim, you want to do a Serial Idiocy episode? And I went, do I? Because, uh, yes, I've been wanting to do Serial Idiocy for a while, but a series is a major time investment, but we were already investing the time at that point, so yeah. screw it. <laughs> we were already investing the time at that point, and the problem we'd been bouncing off of, and this is a little off topic, but not too major, is... We couldn't agree on a series. Like, you know, Grimm was wanting to do Arcane, but I was kind of mad about Arcane and things like that. Yeah. And this one, we were both just like, Do it. It is amazing. Do it now. It's also a show with an amazingly diverse cast. And honestly, if we continue on this, we're just going to be doing the episode, so... Uh, also, of course, Sandman is currently trending all over the world, so we wanted to jump on that bandwagon. We're shameless trend chasers. A little bit. We're going to break this episode up into two segments. The first will be a spoiler-free discussion of the show itself. We will be giving ample warning before we finish that segment and enter into the spoiler segment. Well, okay, then I don't need to say my next line. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Because what's in the spoiler section? What is the spoiler section, Zolgar? You you t- you screwed up our screwed up the script. Darn you! I'm gonna hurt you now. <laughs> We're just a couple of idiots. What were you expecting? So the 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 second portion of the show will be a spoiler filled discussion, a filler of both the show and the first sixteen issues of the comic. So without further ado, let's get into Sandman. Mister Sandman, bring me a dream. Da, 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 da. Stop right there. We don't have the rights. <laughs> you want to get us sued? This is how I, we get sued. I think that song is old enough that it's in public domain by now. I'm not going to take the risk. <laughs> now, if I started singing Metallica's Enter Sandman, then we'd definitely be in trouble. Oh, yeah. But I, Lars Ulrich would just manifest in this room to service lawsuits. I will say, though, I would have actually loved to have had a cover of Enter Sandman or the original, in the soundtrack for this. Playing in the background in the 80s segment. Yes. That we can't talk about yet because it's technically part of the spoiler section. Well, there's a point that this segment takes place in the 80s, you know. Yeah. 
yeah. We can't get into more than that. I mean, we're dealing with... we're going with, to, but we can't yet. We're dealing with entities that are... That have existed longer than this world, so... They're literally called the Endless. They are, what is it, anthropomorphic personifications of primal powers? What I refer to as the cornerstones of any physical reality that contains sapient, sentient life. But I, I think the line I use is actually pretty much what death refers to them as. Yeah. So, we're going to have to do this in stages here to, to bring you along on this journey. A little bit. So, the first stage we're going to get into is the casting, because, oh my god, the casting. The casting is, for lack of a better word, perfect. And we do not say that lightly. We are both of the general overall perception and belief and philosophy when it comes to media that there is no perfect media. This show seriously challenged that preconception. The... There are some characters they made some deviations to in terms of either the gender and or race of the original character. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a bit here. Yeah. But... Those that they didn't, though, the the casting they chose, they practically lifted the character out of the comic book and put them on the screen. And even the characters they did change, the changes are made so seamlessly and the portrayals of these changed, updated characters is, for lack of a better word... Perfect. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. You know, you've got Tom Sturridge as Dream, which I straight up said to Zolgar in our living room that he moves and talks exactly like I always pictured it in my head. Yeah, and I had to just so I started watching this before I read volume two, volume two, but I'd re- read volume one. Before I watched this, as you may know if you've listened to the comics episodes, because that was a few weeks ago. And, yeah, there was nothing about that that seemed like, oh, no, that that's not Dream. No, that was this... He was never in a hurry because he is eternal. He doesn't, doesn't show emotion. He doesn't show concern. He's, he's not... He's not fussed about anything because he is eternal. I think of it less of Tom Sturridge playing Dream and Dream borrowing Tom Sturridge for a while. Yeah, it's like Morpheus just was like, I'm just going to I'm going to borrow this body for 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 a little while. Mm-hmm. They want to tell the story, and I am the storyteller, so I'm gonna make that happen. I'm gonna borrow you. Come here. <laughs> um, Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian was just so creepy and cold and charismatic. And oh God, you want to talk about stepping off the page until I saw him on like a cast video out of costume, hanging out with the other cast on like a BuzzFeed video or something like that. I have... Expected to find out, yeah, no, we actually performed a dark ritual in the basement of an abandoned part of Hollywood and summoned him into our reality. I think the only character that they didn't do a major change to that did not look like they were just lifted straight out of the comic is John D. Because mm-hmm. they would have had to CGI John D. and it, 
the way he was in the comic, and it would not have looked right. Yeah, the the art style they used for him in the comic was very exaggerated, and it doesn't work with a live-action adaptation. That said, David Thewlis played John D. incredibly. You just... You Mm. hated him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... We're going to have a little bit of a debate over him later in the spoiler section. It's going to be a good debate. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, But I want to preface right now that I will be playing devil's advocate. Because my personal feeling on John D is shoot him in the face. Shoot him in the face twice. And then shoot him twin. Just to make sure. (laughs) Because, whew! uh, We'll get into it later, but... Yeet John D into the sun. What'd the sun do to you? It's a crushing, burning hot weight that destroys everything that gets near it? I thought that was capitalism. Did we say that out loud? Whoops! Wait, look over there! Media! (laughs) Yeah, the, the casting on this was amazing, and it's not just the major characters. Even the minor ones, like the house that... Rose ends up in. Yeah, uh, I, I, if we listed off the whole cast of the house, we'd be here for a while. But everybody there, with the exception of one character that made some changes to, for the better, in my opinion, looked like they stepped out of the book. Yeah. And, again, it was... Everyone also played the role incredibly well, which is always... It, it's always a trick, finding that character who looks perfect for an adaptation... And plays the part perfectly. The people responsible for the casting of this project very clearly went out looking for these characters and not names of actors. Yeah, because overall, there are, what is it, four relatively big names in this? Yeah, we've got... Okay, so... Well, let's just get into it real quick. Uh, we got Stephen Fry as Gilbert... Yeah, as Gilbert, and he he is amazing. He's but wonderful. He's also a relatively minor role. Relatively minor, important but minor. Yeah, Patton Oswalt as Matthew, voice acting. Yeah, voice acting because Matthew is a crow. Matthew is a crow. Uh, he does he does the job amazingly as well. He does he does I mean he does great work. We've got Jenna Coleman as Joanna Constantine. Yep, and important to note, within the confines of Sandman, it is Constantine, not Constantine. And yes, Joanna Constantine, in this instance, has taken over the role that was traditionally John Constantine's in the comic. And honestly, the the, the change is fine. It, the change it, is absolutely fine. I mean, I'm okay. Let me let me just without getting too much into the detail of of characterization and details of plot and everything surrounding the character. Everything they did with the change to Joanna taking John's place was done so well that I, who is normally a stickler for trying to get basic aesthetics of a character correct, did not care that they hadn't cut or dyed her hair. Because Joanna, as Joanna, did appear in the original uh, comics as John's ancestor. And she did have a different hairstyle and was blonde. She she knocked it out of the park. Um, We've got, oh, Merv. No, no, no. That, that, that actor's a nobody. No one's ever heard of him. Yeah. But then we also, though, have kind of the, the one that seems a little, kind of the oddest to do. Lucifer Morningstar. 
So, real quick, uh, I do want to go ahead and say who Merv is. Um, no, nah, they're nobody. They don't matter. Uh, let me see. Let me see if I can... It's who like, the fuck is Mark Hamill? Um, you know, I think he was some guy that was in some terrible B space opera back in, like, the 70s. Ah, uh, nobody important. Uh, what is important, though, is Lucifer Morningstar, portrayed by Gwendolyn Christie, which... Mm, hi, I'm gay. Hi, gay. I'm Zolgar. Get out. Uh, now, you You've might been be thinking... You've been waiting to do that in an episode. A little bit. Now, you might be saying the thinking, but Lucifer is a man. In most lore... You would be correct. However, in Sandman, Lucifer is really a lot more portrayed as androgynous, gender neutral. And yes, Gwendolyn Christie has a bit of a feminine aesthetic to Lucifer, but it It works. works. And Gwendolyn Christie played the role amazingly and... Shooed the scenery. Oh, yes. She's in like, what, like... Two, maybe three scenes in the whole thing? Pretty much, yeah. She, she's in one episode, other than a very brief cameo at the very end. And she just lodges in your mind and lives there. Yeah. The, the whole oldest game sequence. Not mm-hmm. going into any detail, because spoiler, but that was amazing. And also something they changed a little bit. Not a lot, though. But it was it was still really good. Yeah. Let's, uh, going through the rest of the cast, we do have um, some more shakeups in the casting. Uh, yeah, so one of the big shakeups is, in fact, I think the biggest deviation of original character to character in the show mm-hmm. is Lucien, or yeah. in the show, Lucien. Yeah. In uh, the comic, Lucien was a white man. Yeah, and uh, here we have a black woman portraying the role and doing it expertly. Uh, So the character is much more important in the show than they were in the comics. And Vivian, I, I, again, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I don't have it in front of me. I'm not going to try without having it in front of me, but she has a very French last name. And she played that role so well with what I refer to as a subtle commanding charisma. Yeah. She, is great. She's got uh, th- there. There is a sequence. Not going to get into details on it. Where she something comes up that happens that causes her to have a negative reaction to another character, and until those two talks things out, she has this dry, cold snark whenever they're in the same room together. It it's glorious. She is an amazing actress. I would love to see her in more. Uh, specifically, I would love to see her playing opposite Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, yeah. Those two playing off each other would be great to ha- to see sometime. And I-, I think there's one other specific casting we just have to mention. There's two. Okay. Who's the first one? We have to bring up Rose, because that character has been changed. True. So... Not going into into major detail, uh, they they deviated a little bit with what they did with Rose Walker, mm-hmm. and the biggest change they did is they did make her a black girl. Yeah, uh, she is portrayed by a black woman, expertly portrayed by a black woman. Yeah. Uh, uh, as a result, her relatives are also black. Uh, her brother and another character we find out is she's related to later. Yeah. 
but uh, she does play a major role later on, not getting into details yet. And so having that major character change like that, I, I did feel we needed to bring that up. Yeah, and there are also a couple of deviations on that character that, not going into major detail, but they make her into a much stronger, more competent character in the show than she was in the comics. She has a lot more agency in the show, which I think is great. And we'll get more into that in the second part of the episode. We absolutely will, because there's some brilliant stuff there that I really want to talk about. I believe that will bring us to another uh, casting choice. that uh, Two casting choices, actually. Two more. I know. Because uh, we forgot to mention death. We did. Um, in fact... With absolute apologies to death and the actress who portrayed her. Give me one moment to pull up, because she is unfortunately not in the top cast. Which oh. I guess makes sense. She was only in the one episode, but she stole the show. Oh, she did. Uh, do, 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 do. Are you death? There we are. So death was portrayed by Kirby Howell Baptiste, and uh, so this portrayal of death, which we're not going to go into great detail on the, this particular portrayal, mm-hmm. not yet. There will be heavy talk of death later, but this is both Grim and I's favorite style of death this is the best representation of death in any media i will die on that hill and And it's not just and happily be taken by death and the re my reasoning for her being my favorite will actually probably surprise those of you who know me and i mean she she steals the show the episode she is in because oh um, yeah so the episode she is in is the is issue eight of the comic book, The Sound of Her Wings. And they and gave the episode the same title. And bloody hell, I'm choking up just thinking about that episode because it's so beautiful. Without spoilers, the original comic issue caused me to cry when I read it 20 years ago. I watched that episode and bawled so much, I had to actually reach out to Neil on social media and thank him. Because it is poignant, and it is human, and I can't go into more detail here because of spoilers, but you better believe we're touching on this in the second half. Ah, okay, Uh, I think we need to take a moment here. Uh, 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 While we're doing that, you can say who played Rose, because I don't think you ever did. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say who played Rose. Sorry. We're organized. No, we're not. We're professionals. Okay, I may botch the pronunciation of this actress's name, and if I do, I apologize. We are very, very white. It is Vanessa, I believe it's Samunyai. She she was brilliant. I would love to see her in more. I think that, if I recall right, this was her very first Her very first acting credit on IMDb. And she knocked it out of the park. She absolutely... I mean, did anyone in this show not knock their role out of the park? Speaking of parks... Okay. And there is... the. So, in this, in this show, we meet a total of four personifications. And one of them is very, very briefly. 
Yeah. The the third one we are going to touch on is Desire. Portrayed amazingly by Mason Alexander Park. And based on social media posts I have seen, I am led to believe that Mason hunted and stalked this role like a panther. Up to and including reaching out to Neil himself on social media to find out who was doing the casting so that they could submit their... uh, uh, apply for the role through the proper channels. And I just want to point out, as somebody who literally just read the comic, Mason... Not, okay, so not only is Mason perfect for this role in mannerisms and just the overarching gorgeous androgyny that de- that Desire needs, Yeah, but Mason also looks the part so well. Mason they- looks the part without dyeing their hair black. Mason is... I, okay. I have expressed this before. I am a spec. I So I will not say Mason, Mason Alexander Park is hot. I will. But they are fucking gorgeous. And by the way, yes, it is they. They are non-binary. Playing a non-binary entity. Chef's kiss. Beautiful. And yes, Desire is also non-binary in the comics. They updated the pronoun usage because it was... They they updated the handling of Desire in general because terminology and handling of gender has changed dramatically in the last 30 plus years. Yeah. There's a lot of elements of the Sandman comics that are an element of their time. Yeah. Desire is particular was handled as he, she, it for the majority of gender nonconforming individuals. It slash its as as pronoun set has fallen out of favor. Many feel it is othering and dehumanizing, but I'm not going to come for the people that still use it. Of course, like your pronouns are your pronouns. Desire is an integral part of humanity. So, and desire wants to be desired by humans. Mission fucking accomplished. Oh, yes. Because I'll say it, Mason Alexander Park is hot. And as desire is hella hot. So, thirst trap out of the way. (laughs) Uh, We could spend another hour just talking about the casting. Yeah, the casting is fantastic. We brought up the changes they made through the casting as we went. So we've covered that, which definitely needed to be covered. Oh, yeah. Uh, I do want to touch in a very vague general sense on who some of these characters are. So Dream is literally Dream. Lord Morpheus. As an Endless, he is the physical personification of Dreams. Yeah. Death is, of course, the Grim Reaper, for lack of a better term. And also, she is Dream's big sister. Uh, All of the Endless are siblings. And Desire is one of the younger siblings and twin to Despair. Which makes a lot of sense because Desire and Despair are kind of... Intrinsically linked. Yeah. We see Despair very briefly, but it was nice to see her. The other ones that we are aware of existing at this point are Delirium and Destiny. Yes. There is a seventh who is referred to as the Prodigal. Yep. And we're not going to talk about who that is, though. 
I know because I've read all of it. But I, we're not gonna we're not gonna get into that. I uh, know because I asked Grim for the name because I, it was I, I might me. name drop the job title in the spoiler section, but I'm not gonna spoil anything past the series in the spoiler section beyond maybe name dropping the title. Yeah. Because if you spoil that for me, I will hurt you. If you want to puzzle it out, I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint right now, being intentionally vague. The seventh endless sibling is something that is also intrinsic to humanity, for better or for worse, and does follow the naming convention of starting with the letter D. They all have the D. Yes, I'm 12. We also see several supporting characters, cast members, etc. Lucienne is the archivist of the Dreaming, which is Morpheus's realm. Where dreams are created and nightmares stalk and people go when they sleep. There, there, there is a section where Dream is absent. We're not going to get too much into that because even though it's the premise of the whole show, it's still spoiler territory. Yeah. But for some reason, he's not around for a little while. And she kind of steps up as, as middle management, but like competent middle management. So yeah, in this, in this, the character is a little more important. We have Rose Walker, who is, let's say, intrinsically connected to the dreaming in a way that we can't get into right now. But she becomes very important later. Yeah, she becomes, she is a... She is a very integral part of the story. Lucifer Morningstar, no further clarification needed. I mean, it's the bloody devil. Any story that the devil is in, if they are not intrinsically linked to that story, there's something wrong. Yeah. And then... Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody important we should touch on. Uh, do we want to touch on the Corinthian at all? Yes, actually. Uh, so the Corinthian is one of Dream's errant nightmares. Yeah. So there, are, there are a few, there are a few entities of the Dreaming that, while Dream is AWOL, decide to go for walkabout, and Corinthian is one of those. He is a nightmare in every sense of the word. There is another nightmare that we meet who. I don't want to spoil anything, but there is something they changed with this character. The character of Galt in the comics was two entities and has been merged for the purposes of the show into a single entity. And also uh, noteworthy is both of the original entities were very non-human. One had a humanoid structure, but was still very non-human mm -hmm. and masculine. Yeah. Galt is more humanoid, but still obviously not human, feminine, and also played by a black woman. Yep. Played uh, masterfully, by the way. Yes, absolutely. And we will get into that character and the cha real changes in the spoiler section, because that is one of my favorite parts of the show. Yep. We are absolutely going there, for sure. There's a lot of, a lot of characters who come and go throughout that are important to know, um... John D is important and integral, but we can't get into the specifics on him because it's directly tied to plot. Geralt? Huh? Or Gilbert, sorry. Gilbert. Gilbert is an important character. 
He is one of the members of the House. Yeah. Where, and the house is a place where Rose Walker stays for a while with another character, uh, Lyda Hall, who is both is and isn't important, and we'll get into that later as well. I suspect she becomes a lot more important later on. You've got those characters. Of course, one of the recurring themes is Rose is, is looking for her brother Jed. That's That's part of her main story is looking for him. And, I mean, the cast of the house is just, you've got this very painfully normal, as they are described, couple in Barbie and Ken. Yes, that is their names. And yes, they hang a lantern on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they hang a lantern on it a little bit in the comic, but in the show, they're just like, oh, yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, There is Zelda and Chantal, who are... No one knows, and that's part of the fun. They, they are both very goth women who are inseparable. Yeah. Um, I could actually make a comment regarding the comics, and I will later, but... Yeah. Um, it's hinted at in one of the dream sequences in this, but it's, that's for the spoiler section. Then there is Hal, the owner of the house. Who is wonderful and... Changed slightly, but mostly to bring his gay front and center a little more. Yeah, it was hinted at that he was gay and he was a drag performer. Yeah. And they just, they really brought the, they brought the gay up to almost a stereotypical level. And normally a stere- an overly stereotyped gay character bothers me, but with as much of the cast was queer, it didn't. Yeah, and something about Hal just feels so genuine. Even yeah. when he's being over the top. Yeah. Not, Hal never felt like a fake character. Which, I think this is a good time to point out that a big change they have made across the board... Is they made it gayer. Now, to be clear, Sandman was one of the OGs for representation. It was gay. It was very gay. The gay was always there. All but, they have done is slide that dial over a bit. Yeah, it, like I say, I, I ref- in the um, kind of notes for this, I referred to it as the comics, the gay dial was at about a four. This, they went up to about an eight or so. Yeah. They didn't quite go all the way to 11. This is not our flag means death. Yeah, but they, they none of the... The, the I, queer characters are shown queer, not just implied queer. Yeah, like the Corinthian in the comic was implied that he might be queer, but it's never straight up said. He is portrayed as straight up gay in this project. Yeah, he is he, he is multiple uh, male encounters, let's say. It's a, a he and that's and that's the other thing is we have Heroes and villains and everything in between, gay. It's not just only the bad guys are gay, only the good guys are gay, only the people who don't matter are gay. No, there's there's a spectrum here. And it's part of what makes this work, honestly. Yeah. It's, like I said, it is a beautifully done adaptation, and it's also beautifully done on its own. Any other major characters you can think of we need to at least touch base on in the vague sense before we before we get to the Okay, let's see. We 
We touched on Constantine yep. in the casting. Yep. I want to bring up Matthew just a little bit. Okay. Matthew Ma- is a crow. And what's interesting is they did not create the character whole cloth for the com- or for the show. He was in the comic, but he had a much more minor role in the comic and they brought him into the show as a more major role partially because there's so much about this world that we as the audience aren't going to know if we haven't read the comics. Yeah. And so he ends up becoming the the new guy, so to speak. Yeah, he's there for other characters to basically exposit at. And and it works. It's yeah. it's fine. It's there great. Is, there is never a place where I really feel like the exposition done did not fit. Yeah, it's it's Matthew will ask a question and someone will either explain or like dismiss it. And then that question ends up getting answered through the course of events happening in that moment. But the fact that he asks the question is why he's there. Yeah. Which is it's good. Uh, You need somebody there to ask your questions. There is a second reason he's there, but I think that needs to go in spoiler territory. So at this point, we're kind of just keep hitting against that wall. So real quick, before we continue on, I would like to give a bit of a content warning to anybody intending to read or watch this. This show and comic are... They are not for the faint of heart. There are some very graphic sequences uh, in terms of both gore and also in terms of traumatic experiences and very real world problems that happen. Yeah, we are talking about a property that tackles uh, drug use and addiction. Child abuse. Child abuse. Rape. Murder. uh, Suicide. The alteration up to and including elimination of free will. And there's two parts I want to call out specifically... Uh, there is an episode, 24-7. My absolute least favorite part of this show. It is so comic. vital. So vital, but so terrible. Yeah. Uh, there is extensive psychological trauma and abuse throughout that episode. And also, towards the the beginning of the end, there is some serious violence. And I, I wouldn't say straight-up gore, but it's visceral and violent and bloody. I would even go so far as calling it limited body horror. Yes. And there is also suicide. Yes. Um, so bear that in mind. You cannot fully skip that episode if you want the complete story. But if you cannot handle psychological trauma on that level or that visceral violence, uh, skip to uh, closer to the end because the end of that episode resolves an important arc that needs to be resolved. You need that context and information, but yeah, you, if you, if you can't handle that kind of content, you want to skip about 15, 20 minutes in the middle of that episode. 
yeah, you 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 absolutely want to want to jump over that. Um, basically, if you're if you're scrolling through, it's safe to return when Dream enters the diner. Yeah, out of context, that means nothing to you. So it's the perfect marker. Yeah. Um, and the other sequence that needs to be mentioned is there is a serial killer convention, yes. which has some interesting moments. It's it's not the majority of the convention itself is actually tame and quiet. We do see one person or two people, excuse me, actively killed there, but it's not super graphic. However, there is also a dream sequence during it, and it is the serial killer's dreams. And it is as, as graphic and sickening and disgusting as you expect it would be. Yeah, it is. It is the dreams of the Doctor, Nimrod, and I forget which the third one we see is, but yeah, I don't. It may have been the Connoisseur. I don't remember, but, but they all have these these cute little sobriquets because nobody wants to use the real name. Go figure. And it's it's like it's well done. Don't get me wrong. Very but, well done. Um, that sequence and the sequence from 24-7 are so jarringly different from the rest of this show that I did want to give you all a content warning. I feel like, as content creators ourselves, we owe our audience at least that much. Yeah, honestly, as, as much as you know, we'd like people to just experience our con- experience content fresh and like really feeling the these visceral experiences there is also the simple fact that some people cannot handle these things or cannot handle these things unprepared and that is absolutely utterly valid and anyone who thinks it's not is frankly an asshole let me put it this way you know me i'm not someone who shies away from most gore right the visceral violence is Something I actually enjoy in most of my media. Not me. Uh, I mean, I'm not into torture porn, but if my action sequences get a little graphic, I don't mind. I squeak out when they start torturing people. Valid. That's valid. So, the comics bothered me zero. The show actually bothered me a little bit. Like, because it is just a sudden shift in tone for those sequences. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing, but it's enough that it, like if I'm looking at it and going, and I who am largely unfazed by these things is going, giving the rest of you a heads up felt appropriate. Yeah. For me, the, 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 the violence, the, and, and gore of the comic doesn't bother me. Gore never bothers me. Gore, violence and torture never bothers me in comics. What bothered me in the comic was the psychological yeah. aspect of 24-7. Which they played up perfectly in this. They did. Yeah, we'll get I into hate that. that episode, but they played we'll, it we'll, beautifully. We'll get into it. Um, so, at this point, this is your spoiler warning. If you have not watched and or read The Sandman, then, honestly, pause this episode... Go watch the Netflix series, read the first 16 issues of the comic, and come back. We'll wait. Did we seriously just tell you to go and watch 10 hours of media content before you come and continue listening to a podcast? 
Yes! We Not only did we tell you to watch 10 hours of media content, we also told you to read 16 issues of a comic book. Yes, we did. It's that good. We'll wait. Everything on the field, but I've also got this, which do- oh, they're back. Uh, 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 Sandman is great and awesome, and <clears throat> get your hands off my cards. These are all my cards. You don't own any cards. So the first thing I want to do is I want to get into some of these characters a little bit deeper because there are. Some things they did with them that are spoilery and horrific, just spoilerific, but are so amazing and they need to be brought up and they need to be discussed. One of them is, I'm going to start up right at the gate and front load it, Gilbert. You mean Fiddler's Green? I mean Fiddler's Green and oh my god, you, you see it coming in the audience, but they don't telegraph it at all. Yeah, so... When you, when you meet, so first, you first encounter Gilbert as this nebulous concept of the guy who lives in the attic and, uh, like, keeps to himself, reads books. Yep. And you're also introduced to, uh, they, well, there are what is referred to as three major, major arcana missing when dream yep. returns. Two and nightmares the, and one dream. Yeah, which are the Corinthian. Who we've already known. Nightmare. Major nightmare. There is Galt, also a nightmare. Yep. We'll get to her in a moment. Get her in a moment. And the Fiddler's Green. So a place, like, I knew he he had personified because I've read the comics. And I, of course, also knew the character was Fiddler's Green because I read the comics. But even approaching it from, if if I temporarily partition that information off in my mind... There is something about Gilbert that feels otherworldly, but like in a good, positive way. He's a very warm, compassionate, caring, supporting character who is willing to draw steel on the behalf of others in need. And when I say draw steel, I mean that literally. He has a sword cane. Oh, I'll, I'll put it this way. As of when you were at, you actually meet Gilbert, I had not read volume two yet. So I did not know. Yeah. The only thing I had was the knowledge that there was one, that there was the Major Arcana, the Fiddler's Green. Mm -hmm. And the moment you actually meet him, I'm like, that's Fiddler's Green. That's Fiddler's Green. So Stephen Fry did an amazing job. Especially because they did not telegraph it. There was none of that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like... The, the closest thing is he wore a green cloak. Yep. That is the closest thing to... That is the only visual story cue you get. There is no, like, camera panning and slowing on a book describing the Fiddler's Green dream archetype, because it is a dream archetype. It, it, is, it is a well-known dream archetype, the Fiddler's Green. So there's no, like, slow pan of a book about Fiddler's Green or... Uh, or, or someone, like, or words and stuff getting arranged just so, so that, like, it sounds like Fiddler's Green for a moment. Or or him standing in front of a billboard that's a big green forest. 
from none of that. Or they didn't pull something like, you know, instead of his name being Gilbert, it was uh, like Philip Green or some shit. They they didn't telegraph it. Yeah. But it was still so perfectly done that it was just, that's that's not human. That's Fiddler's Green. Yeah. And, I mean, he, because, again, it's Stephen Fry. So he played it as this just slightly goofy. In ho, ho! Lo- in Let love, us go, friend. Yeah, in love with life, classic gentleman. And that's the best part about Fiddler's Green. Fiddler's Green didn't leave to leave. Fiddler's Green left to learn more about humans so he could be a better dream. Yeah, and because he was curious. Yeah, he, he, he traveled outside the dreaming to travel. The, the, the line, he has a line in the show that the, you know, the ultimate goal of traveling is to return home as a stranger. Foreigner. He specifically oh, yeah, says as foreigner. foreigner. Sorry, I, I yep. forgot the exact word. Yeah, no, I just, it's just a subtle enough import that I felt the need to correct you. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bothered. Yeah, that, and that's the whole thing is he wanted to experience the world and come back to dream essentially as a new man. Yeah, or which I think new... is an overshoot. And ultimately, Dream decides this is the same as well because he returned on his own um, I, when when the time came. I, I, I do not have the heart to punish you for leaving. Yeah. Which, it, right now, I'm going to tell you right now, major spoiler time for everything. The Sandman is the story of Morpheus reclaiming his soul. Of being a person and not just the job. Which, I think that's actually a good place to bring up the other reason Matthew is involved. Because yeah. at the right at the very start of the show, Morpheus loses one of his ravens. Jessamy. And he is crushed by it. He... he uh, when when he finally sets out to return to the mortal world after seeing the damage that's done because he needs to go reclaim his tools that were taken from him, he it, adamantly refuses a raven. Even though Lucien is very much like, but sir, you always have a, you always have one, and it's it's interesting to me how honestly, yeah, forcing Matthew along was a little bit trying to to get Morpheus to heal a little of that tr- of his own trauma because here's where we can talk about this uh, Morpheus spends a hundred years locked up yeah he so the the opening concept of the of the Sandman I think I think we actually really need to cover that is yeah. that a powerful wizard wants to summon death and bind her and bind death and force death to return his dead son to him. And instead they get Dream. And they botch the spell and they capture Dream instead. And they trap him in a glass sphere. I have a minor correction I want to make over everything you have just said. Burgess was not a powerful wizard. Burgess was a dumbass who got the right connections. He was a lucky sorcerer. He was a lucky sorcerer who had the right connections. He came from money... And he still fucked it up. Yeah. And got the wrong endless. And we see some of the repercussions of that almost immediately with the the sleepy sickness. Yeah. There are 
you know, there are people who they fall asleep and never wake up. There are others that walk around in a almost zombie state. And uh, there are others that that never really sleep. There, There is one woman who, as a young girl, falls asleep and she doesn't wake up until present day. Yeah. She does not wake up at all that entire period. She survives solely out of medical support for the entire time that Dream is locked away. And she only awakens when he finally escapes. Yeah. And that is Unity Kincaid, a very important character, even though she's a relatively minor character. Uh, That is because Unity Kincaid is, in fact, Rose Walker's great-grandmother. Yeah. Dream spends a hundred years trapped in the mortal realm. His, His own realm falls into disrepair. Many of the... Many of, of the denizens of Dream go running amok, and most return when Dream returns, but not all of them. Yeah, and I personally choose to believe that Gilbert just didn't get the memo, because he was no stuffed in a book, traveling. Uh, honestly, that that kind of that does kind of track, or that maybe his whole thing was, well, whenever, whenever Dream comes to me, I'm like, oh, hey, okay, yeah, let's go. Yeah. And uh, the, 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 the big three exceptions, as we already stated, were the Major Arcana, which was Fiddler's Green, the Corinthian, and Galt. Should, should we talk about Galt? I, I teed it up for a reason. So, in the, in the comics, the character of Galt is two characters. It's, um... I don't even fucking Root and Glob, or something like that. I don't even fucking remember. And they are two nightmares that take up residence in Jed's mind, severing him from the dreaming to create their own dreaming where they can be in control. Galt does the same thing, but for a very different reason. She finds this traumatized, abused child and wants to create at least some sort of world where he can be happy. She doesn't want to be a nightmare anymore. She doesn't want to invoke fear. And this sequence, by the way, is one of my favorites because it's where we get the, the winking nod to the superhero Sandman, which is... And it's it's a completely different character design. They, they made up the character design of this Sandman superhero for Jed's dreams. No, they didn't. Well, well they made up for Jed's dream in the comics. Because that is the exact same design as the Sandman in Jed's dreams in the comics. Is it? Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, it wasn't Jed who was the Sandman, but yeah. it was still... And this is the only reference to superheroes in the entire damn thing, and it is better for it, and I will die on that hill. Yeah, um, as I said in my comics episode about Sandman, my, my, my main complaint was it, about it was that it was connected to the DC Universe. Anyways, back to Galt. So we get this sequence of her telling Dream why she did it. And she has one of the greatest lines in the show. Even nightmares can dream. We see that in the final resolution. We already spoiler warned you guys. So, you know, at this point, if you get mad about it, it's your own fault. So Dream punishes her. He sends her to what what they call the darkness. Can you attack it? 
I cast Magic Missile. Where the hell did I cast Magic Missile at? The darkness. <laughs> ah, classics. Yeah, uh, and, and he's like, you're going to be there for like a thousand years or whatever it was. Yeah. So you can, th- you know, to think about it. And at the end of where we leave Morpheus is he's creating new dreams and nightmares. And one of them is he modifies Galt into being a dream instead of a nightmare. She gets beautiful butterfly-like fairy wings. But she's still got that same overarching appearance. He didn't, like, change her to be this beautiful being. It's like she still looks more or less the same. And... Yeah, and the thing of it is, her core appearance was beautiful and gorgeous. The main thing that she did as a nightmare is she would change forms to, to become whatever would inspire fear. And her base form was this beautiful, gorgeous, intricate pattern of color. And she looked like a walking galaxy. Yeah, she was amazing looking. And now I want to point out that it's not just that that closing scene, though, is not just him turning her into a dream. Lucien comes to talk to him about something and, you know, he says that he's, you know, working on a dream right now. And Lucien starts to walk away. He's like, don't you want to say hello? And that is when he shows, when it reveals that the dream he's working on is Galt. And and Lucien is just like, "Why, why did you change your mind? And it's in this moment that we see that all of this journey has brought us to dream he's not there yet but he has reclaimed more of his humanity and the progress has been accelerated slightly compared to the comics but not in a way that's jarring or inappropriate it feels organic it feels like the natural progression and it lets us end on a note with with morpheus and his progression where if for whatever crazy stupid reason the production company goes no more we're still leaving him on a good note. Yeah. If they end... If, if they end... The Sandman here. Which would be the dumbest thing they could ever possibly it, do, but I digress. No, the dumbest thing they could possibly do is make a season two and completely ruin it. Neil won't let them. But, yeah, if they somehow end it right here, it is a satisfying story. Yep. And yeah, we see we see Dream evolve as a person. And one of the reasons I really, really love Galt's story, even though she is such a minor character, she is a tertiary subplot over there, is I love this concept of Growing beyond what you were created for. Yeah. And the change that they did with her serves multiple purposes. One, it sets us up for that scene where we see, yeah, Morpheus has, is learning how to not be a jerk. But also it removes a redundancy because we already had a nightmare pursuing power. We have the Corinthian. Yeah. Having these two jerk-offs living in je- uh, uh, fucking mind... It's pointless. It's it's redundant. We don't need it. And in doing the show, um, apparently they they agreed. Yeah, and it like it's another case where uh, I I will I'm going to say something. 
Yeah. I believe that every single change they made from the comic, mm-hmm. every single one, mm-hmm. the show is better for. I agree completely. And I think they haven't even paid us to say that. And here's the thing. I am usually a bit of a stickler for staying true to source. Yeah. You know, I'm not one I'm not one of those people who's like, oh well they changed things, it's it's wrong. But if there is not if there is not a medium specific reason to change from the source, then I usually don't think the source should be changed from. But in this case, I do firmly believe that every single change they made improved the story. Yeah, everything I've seen has been amazing. Um, and the best part is these changes are might be changes to a specific character or a specific story arc, but these changes are true to the themes and source of the material. And if you can hear dogs barking outside, I'm sorry. I don't know why the neighbor's dogs are barking. Uh, we cannot control them. That might also be Kaiju, but... Yeah, what, well, she's part of the show anyway, so whatever. Unfortunately, uh, we do not have a, have a sound dampening booth yet. Eventually. Someday. Hopefully. But uh, back on track here, I think my... There's, there's a couple of things I want to touch on, and then we should really tackle the hot button issue. First, I want to get into death. So I told you all earlier that death is this death is my favorite personification of death across all media. Death is also, in this instance, my favorite of the endless. Followed closely by Dream and Delirium, who we do not meet in the show or the first two volumes. And death is my favorite. A lot of people in Omega are going to be like, well, of course, death is your favorite. I mean, you are the unholy bun dad. I am a total edge lord. I freely admit this. So you're a pizza wheel. You're all edge and no point. But I have a point here, and my point is, this is my favorite interpretation of death, and death is my favorite of the endless because she is so human. This is not a death that shows up cloak billowing, scythe in hand. Your time has come, mortal. No, she shows up wearing a tank top and jeans, onk around her neck, Leans in, takes her hand, and just goes softly, Come on. It's time. And she gives people a moment if she can. The sound of her wings makes me cry every fucking time. Because we see her on the job. She brings Dream with her because she knows he needs that reconnection. He needs to be reminded of what it means to be human and what it means to be a person. Now, the Endless are not human. By any stretch, they take human form, but they are not human. So it's even more important that they maintain these connections, and he's been out of it for a hundred years. She knows that. So she takes him on the job, so that they can have an extended conversation while she's still maintaining her duties, because her duties are very important. And through the course of it, we see an old musician. We see... A husband who drowns. Uh, not just a husband. A newlywed husband. They and were on their honeymoon. Baby. A baby? A young man murdered in an alley? A young man murdered in an alley. And the one that, that always fucking gets me. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> um, a, a drug addict who ODs 
in a tent, implied to be homeless. She's like, she looked rough. And and just the, the compassion that death brings to her job. And there's a particular moment, I told you this was going to happen. I'm tearing up really hard over here. Um, there's a particular moment where she's talking to Dream about her job and how she wanted to quit. Just walk away from it. She almost did. Uh, she realized, though, that one of the main things about her job is she never does her job alone. And Dream just kind of looks at her like, well, yes, you do. You're the only one who does your job. She's like, no. They're always there. All of these people, all these lives she's touching at the very end to usher into whatever comes next, those people are what keeps her going and her ability to be there for them. And that is why she is my favorite personification of death in all media and why she is my favorite of the endless. Yeah. And she is so, she is so friendly and so personable to them, you know, cause the, the, the one that, oh, that always gets me for the sound of her wings is the old Jewish musician. Yeah. Who they introduce playing the violin with a piece of music that is just a fragment because it was never finished. And, you know, when he realizes who death is, he asks for a moment to to say a prayer. And death grants that. That just that moment to... To end his life on his terms, so to speak. And then we see a very different, just kind of friendly nature with the last one we see her take, which is actually someone we meet briefly at the start of the sh- uh, start of the episode. You know, they're, they're, it, you know, it, it starts out with a dream sitting on a park bench feeding the pigeons. And she makes the, the, the crack from Mary Poppins of, you know what you do if you keep, get if you keep doing that? Fat pigeons. Yeah. And, you know, there's a group playing soccer. And a guy that they're... A guy they're playing soccer ends up flirting with death a little bit. Which, flirting with death takes a very different meaning here. The, uh, and your first clue there should be that he can see her. That, well, I mean, he could also see Dream, because Dream caught the soccer ball. Mm-hmm. But... Then... There at the, the at the end of the episode, you hear the sound of a, a car horn honking and, and something getting hit, and he comes running back up and he's like, "Hey, did, did you see that that car just you know missed me by that much?" And she's like, "Missed you by that much, huh? Come here, I got to show you something." Yep, and she walks off, and and, and that's it. and that was almost frame by frame from the comic, and we uh, hear the sound of her wings. Yep. Every, and that's the other thing is the title comes from the fact that every time she takes them, uh, it's always just out of frame. So we only ever get like the shadow, but you can hear her wings unfurl as she takes them to whatever comes next. You hear the sound of her wings and it's, 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 it's beautiful. I honestly think it's some of Neil's best writing ever. And yeah. I can say that confidently without having read most of his work, unfortunately, I need to fix that, but I, I'm still confident that that's going to be some of his best writing of all time. I mean, I've I have read American Gods and Good Omens, and yeah, I I agree that I that is 
that is my that is honestly the comic is one of my favorite things I've ever read. Period. Yeah. Not just by Gaiman. It is that yeah. that sing that There's, singular comic episode or issue. And that's just one issue of Sandman as a whole. There's a reason Sandman as a whole is considered to be one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Again, it does have some elements where it's a product of its time, but it's it's not it has not aged perfectly, but it's not something that has aged poorly. Yeah. Kind of rattling off a l- rambling off a little bit. We are rambling off a little bit here. So uh, before we touch on the big hot button issue, um, is there anything else you want to bring up? The big issue is going to be 24-7. Yep. And it's final resolution. You know, let's bring up the other half of Sound of Her Wings. Yeah, so we've got another really... Again, remember, this whole show, the whole graphic novel is about Morpheus reclaiming his humanity. Well, not reclaiming his humanity per se because he's not human, but like reclaiming his soul, becoming a person again after a hundred years of trauma. This this particular episode, or story I should say, because it's it is part it is the sound of her wings is actually two issues in yep. one. And I, I think they were married together perfectly. Yeah. And it's another story that starts with dream and death. But this one starts dream- with dream and death back in the 1400s. There, and this is the first place in the comics that we find out that death has a ritual she does every century where she takes human form and walks among humanity. Yep. And she exists among humans to learn about them, to be able to connect with them better. And she drags Dream along, kicking and, and screaming the whole while. Yeah, she drags drags Dream along. You know, again, this is back, um, what was it, 1498 or something like that? Uh, 1389 is where we start. Okay, you're right, 13. I, I was thinking I think it's, a, it's either 85 or 89, I can never remember, but it's the same year, different century every time. Yeah, and so they're in this tavern, and... You know, Dream first starts trying to get her to talk about business, talking about the Fae delegation. Yep. And she's just like, no, listen to the people. And a conversation they overhear is this guy basically saying that death is stupid and how he is not going to die. He's just not going to die. He chose it. He's, he's just choosing not to die because that's why everyone dies. They're just going along with it. They're just going it. along with it. Yeah. Totally stupid, drunkard, you know, and, in a bar nonsense. But. And now, I. I I do miss the fact that there was a, the actual con, or, yeah, there no the con, the conversation was actually in the show, not the comic. The comic they kind of just there's just kind of this glance between them and they know what they're thinking and it's mm-hmm. it's done. But you know, in the show, Dream is like you know start you know make some comment about oh he wouldn't last he wouldn't last a century you know he give it a century and he'd be begging for death and. You know, and death is like, well, you know, I could make his dream, I could make his wish come true, and so it it starts out almost as a a bet between death and dream. There's no no stakes to the bet, but it's an amusement. Yeah, and so dream walks over, 
and makes an agreement with Hob to meet him again at that tavern in a hundred years' time. And so the next sequence we get is them meeting up every hundred years or so, which during the sequence we do actually meet the original Joanna Constantine, who is still played by the same actress as the ancestor of the modern Joanna Constantine. Constantine. Excuse me. And there's all sorts of mishap and, and, and little mini adventures that happen during their conversations. And yeah, we we watch Hob rise and then crash and burn. And then find an equilibrium a, a, a bit. And my, I think the, the greatest part is, you know, after Hob crashes and burns and loses everything, because he's been on the rise, everything's great, and he's like, I have hated every moment of the last 80 years. And Dream's just kind of like, do you still want to live? Are you crazy? You know, I have so much to live for. Yeah. Death is, it still says like the effect of, you know, death is, you know, a fool's mug or something like that. Yeah. I have so much to live for. Yeah. And, and so we continue to see this. And then in, I think it's, yeah, 1889, they have a bit of a falling out. Where Hob is basically just like, dude, you've been you've been coming here expecting me to beg for death, and you at this point you know it's not going to happen. So I think I know why you're coming here. I think you need a friend. And of course, Dream being Dream is all offended and storms out. Basically, something to the effect of, "Are you accusing one such as I of being so lonely? I need to seek." companionship here. Yeah. And the response is, yes, I am. Yep. Because uh, uh, he called him out on that crap right up front. And then, of course, the the, the early part of the, of the 1900s, he gets captured. And he misses the next appointment. Mm-hmm. And... 1989. Um, well, and it's, it's important to note that that very... That, the end of the sequence when he storms out, mm-hmm. Hob yells off something like, well, if I see you again in a hundred years, I know it's because we're friends, yep. right? Yep. And so... And he misses it, and we actually do get to see Hob in the bar in, in, looking a little crestfallen because yeah. Dream doesn't show up. But, you know, he, we know, we get the feeling that he has been still successful again. He's got a cell phone in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those giant fuck-off brick phones, but it was a cell phone. And... A nice car. Then the the owner of the tavern's like, well, you know, you're gonna, gonna have to meet your friend somewhere else because this place is being torn down. And Dream shows up late for the meeting because, well, he was, he was imprisoned in, prison. in the yep. 80s and had to deal with other things. And... Yep. He shows up to this the their their old meeting place being torn down. Well, but then he sees graffiti. It's interesting to note that in all that time, in that thirty year period, because the they set it in the in the twenty twenties. Yeah, modern day. That's one of the things they changed. They updated it. Yeah, they they brought it to modern day because um, it's easier. Yep. Because you don't have to sit there and explain why doesn't anybody just pull out their smartphone? They they, they do quite frequently in the show actually. But it's still standing 30 years later, kind of implying that he, Hob has very deliberately been working to keep it that way, even if it can't remain open. 
or possibly that he fought it for quite a while to, to keep it from being... Because we don't see it being actively torn down. We just see it cordoned off and, and, and closed up and not being maintained. No, there was still there was construction equipment outside for being torn down. I didn't see any construction equipment. Pretty sure there was, but, but whatever. Whatever. Not important. Um, what is important, though, is, is he fought to keep it there. And then, as you said, he sees the graffiti... Yeah, Dream sees the graffiti on the on the fence around it that just says "new in," pointing that way. And it's not stated, but it is implied that the new in that is literally called the new in uh-huh. belongs to Hob. What's also really cool is when Dream goes there, he does find Hob sitting there, and Hob's like, "I, I, I kind of didn't expect that you would show up." There's a little detail I want to touch on first before we get to that conversation. What's that? Did you notice what Hob was doing? Some form of paperwork. He was grading papers. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't. I caught he was, was going. It looked like somebody's like thesis paper or maybe okay, a test uh, packet. You need to explain what it, what he was doing because you did you pantomimed it. No. The audience. I'm gonna just. I'm just gonna pantomime it, and the audience can suffer. Uh, he was making little red check marks with a red pen. You would not normally use a red pen for, like, business paperwork or something like that. He, it, it is heavily implied he was grading papers, and he's now a history teacher. I mean, someone who's lived 500 fucking years, yep. 600 years. Yep. Yeah. And and now we can talk about that conversation. You know, like I say, dreams like, you know, or, or, or sorry, Hobbs like, well, I'd kind of didn't think I'd see you and Dream says something to the effect of you know that he was held up but he you know it was an apology because it's impolite to keep your friends waiting and Hob just gets this shit-eating grin it's beautiful I love it but all but it's not just a shit-eating grin it's this yeah that confirmation yep it was beautiful and it's one of the the again everything is about him refining, regaining his soul. It, yeah, it's... What makes him a person and not just the job. And it's all these little moments. And I honestly think it's a big part of something we're about to have an argument about. So there's a lot of things we'd like to talk about. But the fact of the matter is, and we kind of expected this to happen with a series, is there is a lot to talk about. And frankly, there are some things we just can't quite get to. There are a couple of things we're still going to touch on, but go watch it. Yeah. Uh, in all honesty, we could sit here for six hours talking about this. We could sit here for ten hours talking about this. One per episode. But that's a little bit more of a breakdown than we felt like doing. So, all right. Uh, we're going to go ahead and touch on a, on, a, on a hot button issue here. We're going to have ourselves a little bit of a mini argument. <sighs> okay. So we talked about the episode 24-7. It is John D. with the ruby in a diner. Okay, we need to explain, express something really quick. So Dream starts out with three tools. I'm going to make this very quick. So his three tools are his sand, his helm, and his ruby. And these are stolen from him at the start by... Burgess. Burgess. And the first, the first half of the show is him reclaiming them. Yep. Uh, that is also the fir- the first eight issues of the comic. Yep. And he reclaims the the sand fairly easily with Constantine's help. Uh, goes to hell to reclaim his helm. 
And then the ruby has changed hands a couple of times, but not much. And it ends up in the hands of John D, the bastard son of Burgess. The, so his mistress ran away when uh, she got pregnant and Burgess wanted him wanted her to get an abortion. So John D steals the ruby from her. It's very important to note a couple of things. First off, she's not a good person. She's really not. At the very end, she tries to be, but she's not. She's one of those that have scraped together up from nothing by basically taking advantage of other people and ripping them off or dealing in stolen goods or or being just extra fucking shady. She's not a good person. And she raised him alone. Okay. Now, the ruby... The, the ruby is the most powerful of Dream's tools. He has invested the most of himself into it. And in the hands of a mortal, this ruby has the capability of making dreams come true. Of basically warping reality to the whims of the holder. It is very important to note that Dream has said repeatedly throughout the series about these tools, they are not meant for mortal hands. And John D corrupts the ruby so it will only work for him. Yep. So this ruby is in John D's hands and it, like I say, warps reality to the whims of the holder. Mm -hmm. And what John D wants and believes will save the world is absolute, utter honesty from everyone. And if you are sitting in the audience and hearing that, and you go, oh, God, no, that's the most horrible thing I could think of, congratulations, you're at least still remotely sane. And now I don't want to just mean you can't say falsehoods. I mean tr so true that you cannot go, that you cannot take... That, that fleeting idea that crosses your mind of something you want to do. Like, what would it what would it feel like to hammer a nail through my hand? And in in his perfect world, that curiosity, that that desire to know, you would have to be true to it. So you would have to do it. So it is Though, though everything comes from the mind of the individual doing the action, it is an absolute stripping out of free will because you do not have the ability to say, no, that's a bad idea. I'm not going to do it. And we see this in action in the diner in 24-7. And it's, it's very important to note that while we only see it in the diner, it is clearly stated that it does not only happen in the diner, that it is something that happens all over the world, that it is that destruction is wrought everywhere from the, the will of John D on this corrupted ruby. And this, again, 24-7 is a brutal bloody, disturbing sequence of... It's... it's The the term is visceral. Yeah. The, you know, there is... Like, there is self-mutilation. There is 
not exactly consensual sex. There is... Yeah, you can't give consent if your free will's been overridden. Yeah. There, there is murder. There is just... It's... It yeah. is horrific. It's, it's ugly. You have to understand that when I say visceral, I mean visceral. I mean your gut tightens watching this. Yeah. It's heavy. It is, it is not an easy episode to watch. It is not. Zolgar's hatred of the episode is valid, in my opinion, but it's so important and vital for us to see. This is what happens. Yeah. If Morpheus does not reclaim his stone. Oh, yeah. This, 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 is, this is what will happen. I... And that slow build-up to the full, for lack of a better term, madness of it all is so critical. Yeah. I, I do not like this episode. I really do not like this episode. I did not like the issue of the comic book. But I will not for a moment say that it should be skipped, that it should be bypassed, unless you literally cannot handle unless it. Unless it is literally triggering for you, but you literally cannot consume this part of the media. The, it the, really can't be. Even I, who was skipping, was doing it in very short 10-second bursts through those specific elements that I that were hitting me that hard. I, I wasn't skipping anything, but I also was not paying super close attention. Yeah, I, I was focused almost exclusively on it, so... Which is very rare for me, by the way. Hi, ADHD. I, I also I expressed to Grim that when I when yeah, Grim asked how far along I was in the show, I was like, "So I'm about 35 minutes into an episode that I feel like I've been watching longer than I've watched the entire rest of the series." And then I asked him which one, and he told me, and I went, "Yep, <laughs> that's the one." But it was it is extremely important, and I also want to point something out because. A, sl- a very slight tangent, but not much of one. Uh, I was talking about this episode on Twitter, specifically with one of our other listeners, that would be John Wesley from Sense of Shelf, and he commented that he actually really liked the issue of the comic book because of how visceral and how how screwed up it was and what it showed. And I do want to point out, there is nothing wrong with liking this at mm-hmm. This episode or issue, as long as you're not like, oh well, oh that's a gr- that's great, you know, let's make everyone honest. Let's if you're uh, if you understand the point of the episode and you like it because of the point it shows, that's great. I yep. I respect that. I just yeah, it it it's hard. It is a hard watch. And <sighs> let's just get it over with. Where where Grim and I really disagree is the final fate of John D. Now, again, massive fucking spoiler. Like this is the final resolution of the first arc of yeah. this series. You have been warned. So, Dream confronts John D and at first seems to start losing because John D has immense power now. Because this ruby is ridiculously powerful. Dream has put so much of himself into it that it is something even he has trouble reckoning with. Yeah, and for a moment, John D. thinks he's won because everything changes, everything goes white. And John D. is like, I won. I'm in control of the dreaming now. And then he realizes he is standing in the palm of Dream's hand 
because by destroying the ruby through his attempt to destroy the dreaming, he actually released all the energy back to Dream. And Dream is like, I must thank you. I hadn't actually thought to do that. <laughs> I forgot how much of myself I'd put in there. So John D is sitting there like, uh, you know, it's like, are, are, you, are you going to kill me now? Or, and Dream's like, I could. But he instead takes John D back to the mental institution that he broke out of at the start of this and puts him peacefully to sleep. And I mean literally to sleep, not the the colloquial putting them someone to sleep. Mm. And I personally feel that John D did not have any consequences for his actions. And I want to preface this before we start this argument, because let's be honest, that's what it is. It's going to be an argument. A civil one, because we're trying to maintain entertainment for the audience, right? But an argument all the same. Yeah, fuck you, you're wrong. Fuck you, you're wrong. Your face. Your face. Your mom's face. Your face's mom. Has got it going on. You're not Stacy. <laughs> a little bit of levity before we get serious. A couple of things I want to touch on. First off, Zolgar's sentiment and opinion is always valid. We joke a lot about how you're wrong, you're allowed to be wrong, etc. Those are jokes. Differing opinions and friendships are super important. As long as they're about things that... You know, it's healthy to have different opinions on. If your differing opinion is X group of people shouldn't be considered people, eh, maybe not that one. But um, differing opinions on fiction and media and how things are, that's, yeah, I think it's vital actually to have a friend group that has these different opinions. I want to make that very clear before we get into this. A differing opinion is liking pineapple on pizza or not. A differing opinion is not that certain people do not deserve rights. Unless they're Nazis. Those aren't people. They have chosen to stop being people. You are correct. All right. That out of the way. And one, my side of this argument is going to be from the perspective of how Dream should have handled things, not how I would handle them. I would shoot the motherfucker in the face and then reload and do it again. Just so we're clear. I'm kind of being a little bit of a devil's advocate because I'm arguing for Morpheus, who is a fictional character, not what I would do. I want to make that clear. This is what I think Dream should have done, not what I would do. I think it's what Dream should have done, but I think someone else should have put a cap in his ass. See, that, that it's kind of the whole, the Joker needs to die, but it can't be Batman thing. Rose Walker should kill him. No, I don't want to put that on her. She's such a sweet girl. Let the Corinthian have him. No, the Corinthian would enjoy it too much. Yeah, he gets his later anyway, it's fine. Like, if you honestly thought the Corinthian was getting away with everything he was doing, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All right. Um, the other thing I want to touch on real quick here is, before I get started into the specifics of this, I just want to state for the record that I disagree that he didn't face any consequences. And that my reasoning for that is, one, he is does end incarcerated. In a mental institution. In a mental institution. Uh, but it is incarceration. He is not there voluntarily. And second, it's particularly bad for him because that is the one thing he didn't want. He wanted to be out. He does not want to be in. He is back in. So it's the dual-fold incarceration and absolutely doesn't want to be incarcerated. I will, I will, though, disagree on that because 
I feel partially he feels no, he experiences no real consequences for it because he ends the series, he ends his arc in the same place he begins it, except slightly better off. And that brings me to my stance on it. I believe that Dream did exactly what Dream needed to do to continue his journey to reclaim his soul. Because in Dream's mind, the actions, and he basically says as much when he's talking to John Dee during that final confrontation, are you going to kill me? Part of his reasoning is the ruby was never meant for mortal hands. And because it was never meant for mortal hands... What happened was a consequence of the ruby falling into mortal hands, and thus, by Dream's logic, John is not entirely responsible for what he did. And I don't disagree with Dream's rationale. Uh, like I said, I, I don't necessarily disagree that Dream did the right thing for Dream. I just... Honestly, I like a little bit more of a... What's the right word? I like the villains in my media to experience slightly more appropriate consequences for their actions. Again, I don't disagree that Dream did what was right for Dream, but I don't think that the power of the ruby alone can be accountable for what John D. did, because while power corrupts, I do believe that part of the corrupting a corruption of power is the use of that power and the choices in how you use that power. With a measurement by mortal power scale, certainly, but we're talking about an otherworldly artifact that does not belong in our world. So we don't actually know all the rules of how it works. We don't, but that doesn't change my point. You know, like, that's going to be how you feel on the subject, for sure. We've actually talked about this outside of this episode, which is why we kind of went, yeah, we should probably have this conversation in the episode. Uh, our, our conversation outside of the episode was a lot more heated. Little bit, little bit. We, we both, in the moment, we tend to both get a little passionate. Yeah. No, which... no names were, were thrown around and, and we weren't, like, slamming each other in the walls, but like, no, you're wrong. But we, we do feel very passionate about the media we consume and the opinions we form therein, so our private conversations do get heated. Which honestly might be a little bit better for the podcast, but it's also a lot harder to... It's one thing for us to have that argument in private and then sit down later and be like... Because there have been a couple times where one or both of us have gone a little too far. It's a lot harder to walk that back in an entertainment format. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing is, since we always talk about these things before the podcast, we've kind of gotten to the point where we know what each other is saying, thinking, and it's... And it allows us to still have this conversation like this, and what I think is hopefully entertaining for you, the audience, but not throwing chairs at each other and screaming names and tearing each other's heads off. Not, and not becoming loud, angry white men. Commodifying our emotions, basically not becoming a shitty reality TV show. Or a shitty reality-adjacent commentary podcast looking at certain major known entities, but not naming any names. Mostly because we don't want to get sued. <laughs> we are too poor for that. So, yeah, that was a little heated, a little, little hot, but not as hot as... It could have gone. We've we've had the hotter conversation already. And yeah, that's a little bit of showing you how the sausage is made. But we feel it's important to maintain the fact that eh, 
Solger and I are friends. Yeah, and you know, friends. But we we are also friends who have been friends way too long and basically have no filter with each other. We really don't. So we do that in private so that when we come to you, we can have that little bit of filter because you might think you want us unfiltered. You do not want us unfiltered. The closest you're ever going to get is unleashed. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, the closest you're ever going to get is the note sessions. True. That said... Shameless plug for our Patreon goes here. <laughs> right? That said, uh, I want... There was one other thing we wanted to touch base on. The oldest game. So, remember we told y'all that Morpheus needed to regain his tools. And one of them, his helmet, had been traded to hell for an amulet of protection. So he needed to go to hell to retrieve his helmet. And to retrieve his helmet, he has to challenge a demon to a game. And the difference here between the comic and the show is he challenges a demon, and in the comic, he competes against the demon. In the show, he competes against Lucifer. And this was done for a few reasons. One, they just wanted to show Lucifer off more. And two, honestly, Gwendolyn Christie opposite Tom Sturridge was far better visual. And also, there's one other thing it does. It makes the stakes so much higher. Because, oh, it's a random mook demon. Whatever. But it's Lucifer Morningstar. It is the literal king of hell. They literally set it up that, yes, Lucifer is more powerful than Morpheus in a conversation with Matthew. Lucifer is frickin' Lucifer. Especially more powerful than Morpheus at the center of hell when Morpheus doesn't have all of his tools. It is, if not flat out stated, heavily implied that the only being in the cosmos greater than Lucifer... It's the being that created him. The big old capital G God. Yeah. Oh, and now I have to fight this being. Crap! Uh, but it's not It's not a fight. It's it, it is a contest. A, co- what, a contest of, what is it? Confidence and creativity? Confidence, creativity, and transformation. And... Basically, one makes a move by saying, I am... Whatever. And then the other counters it with something. And then, the and based on what they say they are and what they do, that inflicts damage on your opponent. So, you know how you're a little kid, like, bang, bang, I shot you. Nuh-uh, I got a shield. Yeah, well, I got shield-piercing bullets. Yeah, well, my shield is unpierceable, and... It is basically that, but enforced by the magic of hell. Yeah, it is, and it is, I mean, it's a cool concept, and it was executed beautifully in the show. And because it's a contest of hell, it has rules, which is why Lucifer's power here matters, but doesn't matter. It matters for the stakes, but it doesn't matter for the game. Like, uh, if you are with... Well, let's let's use the exact example of what we started with. A dire wolf. Well, let me back up for a moment. This is like, okay, we need to resolve our issues by playing Mortal Kombat. 
The person you're having an issue with is the President of the United States. For the purposes of the game itself, playing a video game, it doesn't matter that he's the President of the United States. But outside of that, in the greater context, yeah, it kind of matters that it's the President of the United States. Yeah. And... So, like I said, you you start out you're with the dire wolf. Yeah, you're and with the dire wolf. Then your opponent says, "Well, I I am a hunter with a spear, spearing the dire wolf. I and am a snake biting the hunter's horse." Uh, and and it, it starts out kind of this this this. It, it first starts out going smaller, and then it flips and gets bigger and bigger. I am anti-life. And I'm sitting there going, oof. Well, and anti-life was in response to I am a universe. Yep. Like, we, we are we are talking cosmic scale by this point. And I don't think I want to spoil, even though this is the spoiler section, the final play. Because it's it's beautiful. Yeah, the, uh, the final play, if you have not watched this or read it, the final play is so gloriously done. And it's, it's beautiful and amazing, and the acting and the direction and the camera work and the effects all make it. I'm going to say the fucking word again. Perfect. I want to ask you a simple question: If you have not watched or read this yet, what is more powerful than the anti-life? What is more powerful than something that obliterates every living? thing in existence what survives the end of the universe ponder that and while you're pondering that go fucking watch this sandman is one of the greatest comics and graphic novels ever written this is easily one of the greatest shows i've ever watched yeah i because i came into it so late i am not as big of a fan of sandman as many people are because I've read so many other amazing comics and graphic novels by other amazing creators. Yeah, and, and I want to point out, I always, I'm very careful in my wording when I say one of, because there are some amazing books out there. And especially in modern years, when we're getting more and more things by independent creators, by publisher, or by creator-controlled publishers, there are some great stories out there. So for me, Sandman doesn't hit quite the same way because I'm not being introduced by these greater concepts in comics by Sandman like so many people were. That said, it holds its weight. Oh, it does. And it is still... I mean, it, this comic was started running in 1989, and it is still a regular great seller, and it is still a very well-written comic despite all the places where it does not age as well because it's a product of its time yeah and this show gave them an opportunity to update some of those concepts and they have done so amazingly they have taken what was there and this might sound like heresy to purists but they made it better yeah like i said i have read the first 16 issues in the last six months so this is very fresh for me and i watched the show this weekend. I genuinely believe the show is better than the comics. I'm going to give the show a little bit of free advertising here. Like um, we haven't been doing that this entire episode? I'm going to give y'all stats. You ready for stats? Here's your stats. 
Number one trending within the first 24 hours in 80 countries. Yeah, this this show did so incredibly well. I mean, it is it is aesthetically beautiful. It is amazingly told, amazingly shot, amazingly acted. And and the only thing stopping me from going back and watching it right now is that it is dense. I, I am. I need a little bit of time, but I am going to be rewatching this. I am sitting here, literally trying to think of any negative thing I could say about this show, other than the fact that I just I did not enjoy that episode. Yeah, twenty four seven is rough. Yeah, I can't think of a single thing. Everything, all the minor little changes and tweaks they did make everything better. The acting is great. The cast is great. The direction is great. The effects are. They make the dreaming believable. Which sounds counterintuitive because the dreaming is literally the creative subconscious unconscious of all mankind. But they sold it. Yeah, they sold everything in this show. I think if I had to find some little thing to nitpick and say negative about it, the pacing could have been a tiny bit better. For a modern audience especially, the pacing is very slow. Now, it is deliberately slow. It was done with intent, not just this is bad pacing, just they chose their pacing very specifically and they executed it well. It's just that for a modern audience, it is a little slower than most prefer. Yeah, every, it's it's basically every now and then outside of episode 20, outside of 24-7 because that one drags because of the content. Oh but god, yeah. Outside of that, there are a few points where it just starts to feel like it drags and then it picks up. Yeah, and I think that's part of the what makes the pacing important here for it. Again, for modern audience, it's it's a little slow, but it's it's the fact that it's every so often when it starts picking up what I would consider to be a little too much speed for the narrative, we slow back down a little bit. And right when things are getting to be a little too slow for the narrative, things accelerate. Yeah, this this is not an MCU property of like just bam 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 bam. It takes its time. It gives you some time to ruminate on things, to to get to know some of these characters a little bit. It, it's a dance. It's, yeah. it's a song. It, there's a rhythm. There's a flow. There's a chorus. There's a medley. There's a verse. I would say it's not a song. It's an album. Yeah. But it's definitely... Uh, there's a rhythm to yeah. it. And it's it's beautifully done. So... I guess in closing, once again, I'm just going to say, go fucking watch it! Seriously, go go watch it. If you don't have Netflix, uh, first of all, what the hell is wrong with you? But if you don't have Netflix, find a friend who has it, either... Bum it off of somebody! Yeah, either steal their password, don't actually steal their password, ask We hear it, two idiots and a dog, do not condone any illegal action, including stealing of passwords. But, you know, see if you can, like, go over to their house, watch it with them, because... If they haven't watched it, they should watch it too. Yeah, have oh. a big watch party of all your friends who haven't seen it yet. Yeah, just, I mean, go, go watch it. If you haven't read the comic, see if you can get it from your local library or go get it from your local comic book shop. It's it's 20 bucks for the, for the first trade paperback. It's well worth it. Or you can check to see if your library has it digitally. Mm-hmm. Digital comics are not my favorite, but they're great. They are a great I, way to read things. That's how I read it. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed this slightly experimental episode of Serial Idiocy. 
If you did, please consider rating, reviewing, following, and all that other nonsense on your favorite podcast platforms. If you'd like to tell us how much of idiots we are or send kaiju fan mail, you can email us at tiaadmedia at gmail.com, or you can find us on Discord and the various social media platforms, all linked in the show notes. We should also promo another podcast. That sounds like a terrible idea. Let's do it! But who? Oh, let's see what happens when I push this button. Once upon a time, 27 years after the bombs fell, there were two people, a vault dweller and a California girl. They met and sparks flew. That's when things got interesting. Once Upon a Wasteland is their story. Follow Elizabeth Kirby and Odessa Valdez as they pursue their happily ever after in the post-apocalyptic Appalachian wasteland of Fallout 76. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout 76 love story. Available now. We'd also like to give a quick thank you to our supporters on Patreon and Ko-fi. Especially these idiots. Random Warrior, Rain, and the perpetually banned Athen Mortis. Thank you. We, uh, well, we might be able to do it without you, but it would not be nearly as much fun. If you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or Ko-fi. You can get access to episodes a week early, shoutouts in our episodes, and special behind-the-scenes bonus content. Also, we won't put commercials in our Patreon episodes. You can find us on patreon.com slash tiaadmedia and ko-fi.com slash tiaadmedia. Those links are in our show notes as well. And, of course, thank you for listening to Two Idiots and a Dog.